This week at Hope Point. That's the attitude of the world. That God's never going to do anything about it. And they just flaunt that. Could do anything we want because God is doing nothing and will never do anything. So God puts these prayers in the Bible so that you'll not feel guilty for feeling this longing for God to do something. God validates you when you said this world is upside down. Sin is celebrated. Righteousness is hated. All the forces of evil attempt to silence truth and promote lies. And if you're made in the image of God, he said it is the most beautiful thing in the world to long for that to be reversed. Throughout the scripture, God reveals himself as the creator of the world, who alone has the right to rule the world. Even when man violates these loving and wise rules, God offers forgiveness through Jesus Christ, the only rightful king of heaven and earth. As the church has celebrated God's sovereignty and salvation over the past two centuries, a hostile world has persecuted those who have been faithful to speak truth in the name of Jesus. From the beginning of time, God's people have looked at their holy God and asked, how long will you allow injustice to prevail over justice? When will you vindicate your people and your name? In our study today, we will see how right it is to ask such a question and the timely manner in which God intends to answer the cries of His people. Let's listen to what Richard has to say to us from Revelation chapter 6. I was browsing through Facebook this week and came across an interesting picture of a man sitting down tending to a bloody knee and a bruised face, bruised head. He was the father of one of our key leaders um, in India that serves numerous communities by helping them get very practical supplies such as clean drinking water and also preaching the gospel. But a group of, uh, of radicals in his community approached him one afternoon and said, stop doing gospel works. <clears throat> Inform your son that he will be killed if, his, if he and his team do not stop. The man climbed from the ground and told his persecutors, my son is ready to die for Christ. And he has been chosen by God to do his work. So this man, his son, and that team had already determined in their mind of what they will be willing to die for on this earth. And so I want to ask you this morning to begin this conversation. Is there anything on earth that you say, oh, for sure, I would die for that? Probably it would be an easy answer. You say, I'd die for my family. Somebody breaks into my house at night. Whether I was strong enough or whatever, I would try. I would come down the stairs I would see who's in the room and I would do all that I could. I would die for my family. And some of you might say, I would die. Some of you have said, some people have said in life, businessmen have said it throughout the years, I'd die for my business. I would defend it against a riot. I would give all of my life savings to start it up no matter what happens. I would endure great many nights of no sleep and pressure and maybe produce a heart attack. I'd die for business. Some people would say, I would die for, I would jump in a raging river to save somebody in trouble. I would go into a burning house to save somebody in jeopardy. But would you die? Would you die for the cause of Christ? Would you die for the chance to say the name of Jesus in a village? They're going to kill you if you said that again. Would you die for the work of Christ? Would you die for the cause of God to spread in this city? What would you be willing to give your life for? A group of believers in Revelation 6 said, I'll die for the cause of Christ. Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, 
I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. When you come to the fifth seal in the book of Revelation, we're building on what we talked about last week, that Jesus Christ in this highly figurative, metaphorical, but very real book was handed a scroll by God the Father on the throne, Jesus Christ, who's referred to as a lamb in Revelation, receives the scroll, which turns out to be um, the unveiling of the final events of history. Last week, we looked at four of those, and they're called seals because a lot of times in the Roman world, a seal, which was going to say who got what, and when a property was handed out, was sealed with many waxed seals so that it, would, it could not be opened before the final time. So here, this scroll is sealed seven times, seven wax seals. We opened four of them last week. The first four seals of the scroll that deal with the end of history had to do, first of all, with a man who came promising to be a savior, political, military, cultural savior, but all he produced was war, terror, famine, inflation, disease, and death. He was a deceiver. That happened in the first four seals. Calamity came to all the earth. Then in the fifth seal, the opening of the fifth seal, we changed from the events of earth to now the events of heaven. There's a group of believers that are now in heaven. They died. They died during the first four seals on earth. They died during all of this earthly calamity and they were slain because of the word of God and their testimony. They never quit believing. You know, people always ask me if, you know, people will, in the book of Revelation, is it talking about suffering that will occur to the church? And I think this fifth seal answers that quite clearly. That during the preaching or during the calamity that came on the, the earth, during seals one, two, three, four, and five, the church kept preaching. They kept witnessing. They kept give, giving evidence to the glory of God and the goodness of God, singing just like you did, except it resulted in their martyrdom. It resulted in their dying for their, their witness. As the world becomes increasingly hostile toward God, it will seek to punish those who love a holy God and exalt the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all powers and rulers. You just singing loud a minute ago, like he, Jesus is the only one, all the glory to Jesus. And you sing that around the world and you're going to die. You can sing that in the marketplace in the Middle East. <laughs> so the, the more that the world grows hostile toward God and you sing about the supremacy of Jesus, it's, it's costly and always has been. You know, when you read the book of Revelation, and if you interpret it from what's called a futuristic standpoint, that everything in the, Revel in the book of Revelation is talking about some future event, the book would make absolutely no sense to those in the first century. I mean, when you tell those in the first century church, oh, um, this was written about a suffering that's going to happen in year 2023. They're saying, what's 2023? What does that mean? They have no idea. All they know is they're suffering now, and John speaks to their suffering. So the book makes no sense to people throughout the years if it wasn't written to them in the midst of, of their suffering. I think there are three primary ways that reasons that believers on this earth suffer. 
We suffer first on earth because it's a fallen earth. It's a cursed earth. Man sinned. God responded with a curse. So now the earth actually works against us, not fully, but partially. Disease, death happens in a way that the original earth would not have allowed. So the earth is cursed. That's part of our pain. The second reason that we suffer on this earth is because of evil people, evil people doing evil things. They make unwise and unholy decisions. It results in people being hurt. We see that all over, all over the place all the time. Children being hurt by, by foolish parents. And it's just the world is full of evil people that bring pain. And then third reason that believers suffer on earth is because of their witness for Christ in Revelation chapter 6. People all over the world are suffering because of their faithfulness to the gospel. So there may be more, but there will be three big reasons that Christians suffer. The primary two reasons that the world detests our message that you just sang so boldly is because our message contains two primary points. God is the creator of the world, and therefore he gets to establish the rules of the world. God establishes the rules of morality and behavior because he created everything. world hates when you sing about that. Second thing is we say because of God being a holy creator ruler, when we reject his rulership, his kingship, the only thing that can cleanse us of sins is a savior named Jesus. He's the only one who can forgive us because of the blood that he shed for our sins. So when you declare to the world that Jesus is the savior of the world and only Jesus, and that if you won't accept his salvation, you will experience his judgment. The world hates that. So that message creates problems in the world. That God is the creator and the ruler. Jesus is the savior and judge. Jesus is a gentle lamb in chapter 5. He's a fierce judge in chapter 6. That's the message of Revelation. So in the midst of all of the chaos that's occurring in seals one, two, three, and four, these people held on to the word of God and did not, and did not bend. You know, the, 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 the culture in which they preached was a thousand times worse than ours. Sin was celebrated, perversion was applauded. The ruler of Rome was worshiped as the chief god of all the gods. And they intimidated people by building massive idols in his honor and all sorts of rituals to honor him. And so if you wanted to keep your job, you had to worship the Caesar in Rome. If you wanted to be accepted by society and culture, you had to engage in the immoral practices that they said were acceptable, including their worship of false gods. And the early church did not bend. They did not bow. They didn't sway. And it cost them their life. There's a lot of voices in our culture. Many of them attend church every Sunday morning that say if the church was doing the right thing right now, if the church was kind enough and loving enough and giving enough and benevolent enough, there would be just this big giant unity party throughout the world. And therefore the lack of unity in the world is, is the fault of the church. And I'm here to tell you that the early church was extraordinary benevolent, but when they said this message, 
that there is no word from God except Scripture, and there is no Savior except Jesus. It costs them everything. You know, sometimes the persecution of the world is subtle. Sometimes it's not so subtle. This week in this country, it was not so subtle. I know that you, even if you don't follow the news, you probably at least heard somewhere on a Twitter feed that the government announced within the Department of the Homeland Security Division, a new division called the Disinformation Governance Board. This is remarkable. This board is designed to tell Americans what is true and what is false. This is from their own website. The spread of disinformation as determined by the U.S. government the spread of disinformation can affect public trust in our democratic institutions. So the government said, in order for you to know what is true and what is false, we're going to tell you, we're going to form a government board called the Disinformation Board to tell you what is true and what is false. Listen, there's nothing partisan about that. I don't care. We've had, what, 40 46 presidents, I guess. I don't, I don't know, maybe around there. I don't care who's the president. I don't want the government ever telling me what is true. They're wacky. They've always been wacky. We, 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 nobody says that, we don't look for politicians to be preachers. No politician is ever like, just, I don't want anybody to tell me about me or my family or you or your family. Never to tell me what is true. Ever. Let me tell you, the role of government, really, the role of government is to make sure that I can get out of my car and come into this building without getting killed. This is the design of the government is to keep its people safe. That's all that we want government to do, but don't tell me what is true. Just keep me from getting killed. Hire enough police, enough military, keep me alive. And, and let me say what I want to say in this building, and you come or not come as you determine. But I don't need them to tell any of us what is, what is true. But let me tell you how dis disinformation worked in the first century. The Roman government said that Caesar was God, was worthy of worship. The early church said, no, 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 there's only one God, his name is Yahweh, and there's only one king on earth, his name is Jesus. And the Roman government said, that's disinformation, and the early church died because of that. The most comforting thing about the suffering of these people in Revelation 6 is they had done nothing wrong. I mean, most believers, they all, all they died was for clinging to, they held their Bible a little more tightly and spoke it a little bit more openly. That was their crime. Most believers are going to die from old age, disease, or accidents. But a few believers will die like this. They will die as they're speaking the words of Christ in their communities, in their villages, in their cities. So again, I'm going to ask you a question. Is there anything in your life that you'd be willing to die for? And would you be willing to die for the chance to say the name of Jesus if it cost you your life? Well, that, answer, that question was answered last year with a yes by a man named Abdu who, li who lived in Niger, Africa. As you know, the word of God is spreading rapidly now in sub-Sahara Africa. Revivals are everywhere. Matter of fact, this is not Abdu. 
but these are people not far from his village. It's interesting when so many people are coming to Christ in the Sahara Desert, water is a little difficult to find to baptize them. So here they've invented this collection point of water in a plastic sheet and have people sit in it for baptism. This is how much they are longing for the privilege to publicly say Jesus Christ is King and Savior. And that's happening all over. But it's costly. It's costly in sub-Saharan Africa. Abdu, last year, along with his wife, Halima, had heard that Islamic extremists had entered the border from Mali into Niger, and they had killed numerous Christians. In one particular village, they were marking out those believers that were wearing a cross. Now, Abdu had always found it very comforting to him ever since he'd given his life to Christ. Each morning, he dressed by putting a cross around his, his neck. So that morning after the word had got out that persecution was coming toward their region, he again got dressed and put his cross necklace on and his 13-year-old daughter asked him, why are you continuing to wear the cross when that marks you? And Abdu told her, if I have to die, I want to die with a cross hanging from my neck. Well, three days later, May 2021, it was the last day of Ramadan. 18 extremists rode into his village. Abdu and Halima had just finished breakfast and now we're in, entering a time of prayer. And the extremists came in on motorcycles and surrounded the church and gathered up all the Bibles and the hymnals and set them on fire in the public square. And then they started going from house to house looking for believers. When Abdu saw him enter the house of one of his fellow Christians, Abdu on his crutches, went into that house to try to help his friend. And he was shot immediately and died. And now Abdu is with these believers in Revelation chapter 6, who died for the cause, who died for the cause of Christ. I want to tell you that I think nobody in this room, let me say this very clearly, because you may misunderstand me at this point. Nobody in this room, including me, do you hear how I emphasize that? I got a little bit louder. Nobody in this room, including me, is seeking a martyr's death. I don't want that. The Bible does not romanticize martyrdom. It doesn't romanticize death at all. It certainly does not romanticize martyrdom. In fact, you can look at Acts chapter 6 when Stephen was martyred and stoned to death, said the church grieved deeply for him. He's in glory. The Bible sees us, shows us seeing him. He sees Jesus on his way out. He sees the king. But the people that are left behind grieve deeply. I, wanna, I want you to get a picture of those who, who are, who are um, left behind, or who, who make it to glory, not those who are left behind, that would be you. Romans 6, 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. I just want to tell you how precious these people are to God. You wouldn't understand this if you didn't have a little bit of an understanding of Old Testament. But let me just say this, when you read the book of Revelation 400 times, it points back to something in the Old Testament. You can't really understand Revelation. You don't think about that as an Old Testament book, do you? This is one of the times it's pointing back to, well, you got to know what the altar is. Listen, in the Old Testament, if you wanted to worship God, it wasn't just about coming to church and singing and, and uh, 
you know, with the instruments and the keys, to worship God, you had to bring the blood of a sacrificed animal as um, payment for your sin. And this is how it was described, how you do that in the book of Exodus 29. Bring the bull to the front of the tent of meeting, slaughtered in the Lord's presence, take some of the bull's blood and put it on the horns of the altar and pour out the rest at the base of the altar or underneath the altar. So remember, every animal sacrifice in the Old Testament pointed to the blood sacrifice of Jesus in the New. It was just just a, a way of emphasizing the message, Christ, better blood is coming. But look where the blood goes in this offering. It goes underneath the altar. God sees it, and the Bible says when God saw the altar and the blood under it, he was pleased as if a soothing aroma had entered his nostrils that sin had been atoned for. So now you come to Revelation chapter 6, And you see the souls of those who had died for Christ and their blood was under the altar. You say, what's an altar doing in heaven? Well, you know, Revelation's pretty mystical and sometimes uses some pretty wild language. But remember when God told Moses to build the altar on earth, he said, build the altar on earth according to the pattern that you see in heaven. Like it's a copy. The Old Testament altar was a copy of the real one. And so here in heaven... God says, everyone who dies for my name is precious to me like that Old Testament sacrifice. So even though we have sorrow on earth with loss, God says, I see their death as precious, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, is what you see in Revelation 6. Precious to me that I never stop looking at those who have lived for me on earth. Now, those who died on earth ask a question that everybody in this room is asking today, and you're grateful for the Bible's transparency. They, the ones who died by martyrdom on on earth, they, they called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? When are we getting justice? I'm sure nobody in this room has ever asked that. Like, hey, this was done wrong to me. When is that going to be made wrong? Or this was done wrong in the world. When are you going to make it right? I want to say two things about the cry in our hearts for justice this morning. Number one, we long for justice because we know that injustice is the opposite of everything God is. The reason that we grow at times disappointed with the decisions God makes is because we know that he is just and what just happened, that wasn't fair. In our mind, it wasn't just. Right thing didn't happen. One of the greatest proofs of the existence of God is your longing and your understanding there should be justice. Why do you believe that? Because you're made in his image. And this is what he looks like. This, This is what they... This is what they tell him about his character when they're praying. How long, and they describe him in three ways. Sovereign Lord, holy and true. Now that, that bothers them. Because this is what you're like, God. You're sovereign, which means you're an unopposed ruler. That was in the third song a minute ago. Nobody can oppose you. Holy, you're infinitely pure. You can't do wrong. 
and you're true, you're eternally reliable. So God, if you're reliable and you're perfectly pure and no one can oppose you, why in the world are you not stopping evil? That's what you're asking this morning. It's what we all ask. How are you able to restrain yourself? Why do you restrain yourself? You could stop this. Now, before we look at God's answer, and he does answer it, I want to look at one more statement about justice. Our longing for justice is validated by all the Bible's prayers for justice. This is comforting. You say, can I pray for justice to be done? Mm -hmm. Now, you might get somebody that graduated from the University of Legalism and say, No, 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 we can never pray for justice because when Jesus was dying on the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them. Stephen, when he was dying in Acts chapter seven, he said, Father, forgive them. Those are good prayers. They're the highest prayers. They're noble prayers, but they don't negate the other prayers. In other words, I hope you're always praying that your worst enemy would not burn in hell. They would come to Christ. But it's okay to also pray, God, if this world continues to defy you, would there be, please, a day when you would make everything right and declare that the world the whole time was wrong? Please, would you do that? Both prayers are great. And I want to tell you, the Bible is full of the prayers for justice. Psalm 35, 1, contend, Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Verse 17, how long, Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their ravages, my precious life from these lions. How long will the enemy mock you, God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand? Psalm 94, rise up, judge the earth, pay back to the proud what they deserve. How long, Lord, will the wicked, how long will the wicked be jubilant? They pour out arrogant words and all the evildoers are full of boasting They slay the widow and the foreigner. They murder the fatherless and they say the Lord does not see and the God of Jacob takes no notice. That's the attitude of the world. The God's never gonna do anything about it and they just flaunt that. Could do anything we want because God is doing nothing and will never do anything So God puts these prayers in the Bible so that you'll not feel guilty for feeling this longing for God to do something. God validates you when you said this world is upside down. It's okay, say that. He says, yep. Sin is celebrated. Righteousness is hated. All the forces of evil attempt to silence truth and promote lies. And all of life, all of the joys of life are constantly interrupted by disease and death. And if you're made in the image of God, he said it is the most beautiful thing in the world to long for that to be reversed, to be no more. You know, when you look at the world, mock God, how good he's been to us, how good he's been to the whole cosmos and to see him mocked you should feel something within you it seems right now that 
that God, who in his kindness has been so great to this very land that our government seems to want to open the Bible every single day and say, how can we do something new to mock the goodness of God? We see so much on film and social media that's immeasurably disgusting. And then we look at all the endless abuses of human rights around the world, the imprisoning and the murder of all the Uyghurs in China. We see all of the uh, babies that are aborted and we see all so many fathers abandoning their families, abandoning women and their children. And everybody who's made in the image of God and born again with a renewed, refurbished image of God longs for justice when all of this will be no more. You're supposed to feel that. But let me just say this, in this praying for justice, we are never praying with joy over the prospect of watching our enemies suffer. That you'll never find in the Bible. Ever. All we want is for, any, for, for evil to stop hurting the vulnerable. Let me say this again. We pray for justice not because we delight in watching evil people experience pain. We pray for justice because we want evil people to stop being able to inflict pain. Because injustice always increases pain. Hurts you, hurts somebody you love. That's why everything is right about you wanting to be out of pain. That's why the Bible ends with heaven. That's why Revelation 6 is followed by Revelation 7. Heaven. You should want to be out of pain. You know, one of the greatest pains we can experience in this world is the pain when we look wrong. When the world declares that we are wrong and yet we were right and you can't save your name. That's one of the greatest pains. I was fired in 1996 from a church in Greenville. By the time I knew what was going on, it was way too late for me. I'd only been there a year, at least not as we owned our first house and we were so excited. We were less than two miles from Furman. Opportunity reached a lot of college kids and, and there was just an unbelievable... Um, tension in the office that I didn't know was there when I walked into it. And so I walked into a personnel committee meeting one night and they charged me, they charged me with age discrimination that they had two witnesses that allegedly heard me say that our church secretary in her 60s should not be able to work in our office because of her age. They said that. Five, charged me with age Now, this is very interesting because I had just gotten back from India. We just launched our work there. And the man that I chose to travel with me to begin our work at El Shaddai Children's Home was 67 years old. And out of all the people that I could choose, I knew he was the best. He would be the most durable. He had the largest heart. And I've, and I've spent the next 12 years after that trying to keep up with him as he did such a great work there. But I'm telling you that, so I got fired. You know, I had to move. And I never cleared my name. 
Anybody that wanted to think that, thought that, and that's what hurts on this world is like for the world today to look at this church and say, that church just is legalistic, unloving, um, judgmental, bigoted, homophobic, and all we're trying to do is say, we want to warn you about the judgment of God that comes upon unrepentant sinners and Christ the Lamb has shed his blood and will forgive anybody who comes to him by faith and trust in his blood. That's not bigoted, that's loving. But the church cannot clear its name. Even in this generation, we will look to the eyes of the world as if we are unloving because we preach the truth. There's another reason that we long for justice, and that is for God's own name to be cleared. You know, when Jesus Christ was crucified, the hardest part of the cross to watch is when his enemies and the surrounding community came and walked up to the cross, and they laughed at Jesus as, they, as he died, as he died, and they mocked him, saying, if you were really the Son of God, your Father in heaven would come right now and end this, and God didn't come. And so we want for the world to know that Jesus is supremely beautiful. And when the world says that Jesus is a nobody, his blood is unimportant, and that he's done nothing special to get us into heaven, that message is leading millions and billions of people away from the only one who can save them, and it breaks our heart that Jesus' name would be mocked and that people would miss heaven because of the mocking of his name. So our prayers, God, please cause Jesus' name to be seen as mighty and magnificent, the Savior that he is. So now we're going to look. Those believers cried out for justice and look at God's answer to them. He does answer them, but typically the way God answers is not exactly the question answer you were expecting. Then each of them was given, this is God's answer, how long until you? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait, literally in the Greek, to rest a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters were killed just as they had been. And that's God's answer to their cry for justice. In other words, God gives these believers who died a white robe, a symbol of perfect purity and the completion of what they were to do on earth and said, my work for you is finished. Here's a white robe. Probably like the, the garments that you can read about in 2 Corinthians 5, the supernatural gift of God that covers us until we get our resurrection body, full of life, full of joy, full of power, probably clothed them with something like that. And then said... Wait, rest, because my work for you is finished on earth, well done, but my work for the rest of my church is not yet finished. Wait until my work is finished, and it involves some more suffering. That's his answer. And there's two reasons that God uses the suffering of believers, because every time a believer dies, there is an opportunity for the world to once again hear Christ is worthy of 
all, every funeral, every martyrdom where people can gather and still believe in Jesus, the world does a head shake and says, wow, they keep believing even though this injustice happened. And it gets the world attention. Second reason God allows these more, more to suffer is because every time another believer dies, it's another opportunity where God says to the world, I gave you a chance, another chance to hear the gospel, another chance to see how courageously somebody would, would live for me. So in God's courtroom of justice, another opportunity to be, to be saved. But I want you to note, this is really important. It's probably the most important thing I can say today. I got this from Kevin DeYoung. I get a lot of stuff from Kevin DeYoung. Sometimes when you ask God for justice, all you get is a promise. You ask for justice now and he says, I promise you it will come, but not now. You want justice now and you get a promise. The promise was wait. And let me tell you something. If you see how God answers their prayer in the next seal in Revelation, seal number six, you're going to be astonished and go, oh my goodness, whoa, did he answer their request. He answered it unbelievable, but after they waited. But I want to tell you right now, if you don't believe that God's going to answer your cry for justice, you'll never take any risk for God. As a matter of fact, you'll spend your life trying to protect yourself and not put yourself in any harm's way where you might suffer injustice because you don't believe that there will ever be any justice. So you'll spend your whole life protecting yourself, no risk-taking Never enduring persecution because you got to make sure that you never lose and always win because nobody wins in the end if you don't believe in the justice of God. But if you believe that God will one day make everything right and he'll make everything right forever, you'll suffer for him now. So they were told to rest until, look at this, rest until the remaining number was completed. Again, this is very important for some of you specifically, that God had in mind before the world began exactly who would suffer the way they did for the completion of his will on earth. Nothing random about their death. God may have used secondary sources like a Roman sword. God will often use secondary sources, but the timing of their death was determined before the world began because precious in the sight of the Lord. Everything about this verse says, God says, nothing about this is random. Everything about this is according to my will and purpose and plan. Hurtful, sorrowful, yes. Random, no. No, there's a number. There's a number there that God said, we will all wait on. If somebody ever asks you, when will Jesus Christ return? We know exactly when he'll return. Two things that he said. When the gospel is preached to the end of the world and when the final number, the last man or woman gives their life for Christ, that number is completed. Then Jesus will come back. And let me just say one thing about the coming back, the return of Christ. 
You go to Revelation 21 and you look at the people who didn't make it into heaven. They were cast into the lake of fire. And when you read the list, you sort of say this. I was expecting to see that list. Revelation 21, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magical arts, uh, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned uh, to the lake, to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And you say, okay, I sort of predicted that would be those who didn't make it. Look how the list began, because I just intentionally left out a word. That list begins with the cowardly. Those who spent their life so ashamed of Jesus, they tried to protect themselves so they would never be rejected by culture. They too are cast into the lake of fire. Today, you might look at the martyrs in Revelation 6 and say, I could never do that. I can't die like that. Can I be the first to say, me too? I stumped my toe on something, and I go, that hurts so bad. <laughs> I can't, you, know, you get a, a nick, whatever, cut. How could I endure the kind of pain they did? You can't endure it now because now is not the time for you to suffer. You say, well, well, how can I be ready for that? Jesus told you in Matthew In Luke chapter 9, then he said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. If one day you might be called upon for that kind of martyr's death, the way you prepare for that is to die daily to self. And you get in a rhythm of dying to self daily, dying to all those habits that are ungodly, dying to selfishness in your spirit, dying to all unbelief now today, you get a rhythm of that and you do that 10,000 times, then one day you'll be ready for whatever he might call upon you to sacrifice. Daily death will lead to the big death. And finally, Jesus Christ said, don't fear when it comes. I'll prepare you. Luke 12, when you're brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry, do not fear about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Across the street from many of your houses in your neighborhood, you'll see a fire hydrant when you go home today. Their fire hydrant's not on today, is it? Because there is no fire. But when it's time for the fire to be put out, the the firemen know how to turn it on. When, When it's your time to suffer, God will turn on the Holy Spirit's spigot and you will be covered with a new power that you have never before experienced. Do not fear. What you need in the future will be given to you in the future. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.